You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Good morning. How many were not here last Sunday on our opening Sunday? We have some notes for you that you can pick up later. They'll be up here at the front from last week. All the uh, notes. This week, I want to share my heart with you about what marriage really means and talk to you about the contrast between what the world thinks about marriage and what the Bible says about marriage, what we know to be true. In the world, we know that marriage is just uh, a contract you can enter into. Uh, Contracts are usually negotiated to minimize your own risk and to maximize your own benefit. If you ever go into a business contract, you know that you're trying to minimize your exposure and your liability and maximize what's in it for you on the other side. And when marriage is looked at in the world as simply a contract that can be entered into maximizing your own uh, protection and minimizing your own liabilities, it ensures that you'll have a marriage that's destined to fail. I think when you think about how easy it is these days to get a marriage license, there used to be all sorts of even waiting periods that you would have to go through in certain states to even be able to get a marriage license. Last night I performed the ceremony for a couple that has been a part of the mill for the last several months. Shelley Harris and Sean McRae got married last night up in Denver and it was really a privilege for me to stand with them as they repeated their vows and and shared the time with their family at the reception. But I thought about it as I opened their marriage license and looked at everything that it contained, all the legal uh, filings that you go through. But really, marriage is more than a contract. It's a covenant. And we know in the world that divorce is a widely accepted solution. And I put solution in quotes because divorce doesn't solve anything. It creates more issues for people than it resolves. I might have told it last week, but it bears repeating. On my way to get married 32 years ago this summer, I drove from Tulsa, Oklahoma. My first stop with my driving companion was uh, the Air Force Academy. His father was the Protestant chaplain at the Academy 32 years ago this summer, and we had been there several times before to sing and to minister in the chapel and to do concerts and things at the Academy. And we checked in very late to the chaplain's quarters on a Saturday night. Got up the next morning, Chaplain Byram was cooking breakfast. And I sat down at the table and he had some stuff going at the stove. And I was eating a bowl of cereal and he was cooking eggs. And he looked at me and said, so, Grothy, you're getting married. I said, yes, sir, this, this Saturday. I'm driving on today to Idaho where my fiancé lives. He said, that's great. Have you all decided not to get a divorce? And I'm eating cereal. And I said, well, chaplain, we we really love each other. He said, have you decided not to get a divorce? And I said, well, we've been dating three and a half years and we really love each other. And he said, Grothy, you're not hearing me. Have you made the decision that divorce is not going to be an option in your marriage? I said, well... We, we, uh, we're committed to each other. He said, have you had the conversation? 
And he went to the side of the table where my cereal spoon was. And he said, if that spoon is divorce and it's still on the table next week after you get married, you're going to go toward that. The first problem you have, that's going to be one of the options you go toward as a threat, as something that you bring up. He said, if this is divorce, I want you to take it off the table. And he threw the spoon under the table. I said, I get it. He said, okay, drive on to Idaho today. When you get there, talk to Becky and call me. So I show up in Idaho the next, I spent the night somewhere. I couldn't go the whole way. So I spent the night in southern Idaho, got up and drove in, got to see Becky. Oh, hello, welcome. You know, I'm getting married in five days. And I said, uh, can we talk? I had no concept what that really sounded like when I said it. I said, oh, no, everything's okay. And we went out in the backyard and I said, you know, I just came from Chaplain Byram's quarters down in Colorado Springs and he told me that we need to take divorce off the table once and for all. And she said, well, sure. I said, let's do that right now. So we just looked at each other and we made the commitment and then we prayed that divorce would never be an option in solving any of our marriage problems. Took the spoon off the table. And I think so many couples go toward what they think is going to be their carefree life together and their life of bliss with no outside problems now that we can legally sleep together and not, not worry about burning in lust for each other in sin. And we're going to just have this wonderful life together. Well, the reality of it is life goes on and the problems are still there we're just going to approach them. How we approach them is what makes the difference. Here's what I want to say to you. The standard for marriage in our world is open for interpretation. Another state even this week uh, said that same-sex marriage was going to be a part of their state constitution, state law. Uh, the, the whole idea of what marriage means is up for grabs in our culture and in our society. So here's what I want to say to you today. What do we know for sure? This is... The first part I want to cover today is what do we really know for sure from God's word about marriage? We know that in the beginning it was not good that a man should be alone. Everything God did for days was good. He made the earth from the dry land was good. Sun from, day, sun from night, day from night, good. Uh, animals in the sea, creeping things on the earth. Everything God made was good, good, good until he made man. It's the first time God said it's not good. So guys, we're just dirt. Get that through your mind. We are dirt. And God said it's not good that man should be alone. So he took from the man's side, you know, ladies, you are prime rib. We're just dirt. You are more refined creation than we are. We honor you, ladies. We give you the rightful place in creation that you deserve. And really, we know that from Genesis 2.18, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Ladies, I want to honor you. And, and I want all the men to hear this. Ladies, you are God's answer to something that wasn't good. 
you are God's creation, purposed to come alongside a man and to be one with him, to be suitable with him. We know from God's word that his favor, God's favor, comes on a man when he finds a wife. Guys can have a great life. Single life can be wonderful. You can have a career. You can be making money. You can have friends. You can have opportunity. But you can have all that and not really have a measure of favor in your life that only comes when you find a wife. Proverbs 18.22, whoever finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the favor of the Lord. I was blessed. I had a good life. But man, the favor of God, the blessing is something you can't earn, you can't learn, you can't buy. The favor of God comes because God just says, be blessed. And when a man finds a wife, and ladies, I must encourage you at this point, you need to be found. You need to be found. You don't need to go out knocking on doors. Ladies, we should be looking for you. There's, there's a desire that God put in a man and a, and a place that... Well, it, let's put it this way. God took her from his side, created her, and then brought her to him. That's how it happened in Genesis. How's it going to happen for you? We also know that a man is to rejoice with the wife of his youth. Proverbs 5.18, may your fountain be blessed. That's a metaphor for intimacy. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice with the wife of your youth. I want you to know I've been rejoicing with the wife of my youth, the wife of my middle age, and in 30 years from now I'll be rejoicing with the wife of my old age. It's all the same woman. You don't have a wife of your youth and then a, a wife of your middle age and you rejoice with the wife of your youth and she's the one that stays with you throughout life. And I want to encourage you guys, in, invest in your attitude here. You need to get God's perspective on what you have to look forward to in your marriage. You should be anticipating these kinds of things in your own life to happen. The favor of God, the rejoicing with a wife. And we know that a husband and a wife are to submit themselves one to another. I get really perturbed when I hear preachers teach from Ephesians chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 22. And they start with verse 22, which very, very powerfully is proclaimed, Wives, submit to your husbands. And that's the text from which they then create this theology of submission for the woman. You're under my thumb, little woman. And you serve me. Back up one verse, big boy, and it starts like this. Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22 goes on to say, Wives, this way. This is how you do it. You give yourself to your husband as unto the Lord. Three verses later, he says, Husbands, this is how you love her and give yourself to her as Christ gave himself for the church. So, Long-term, successful marriages are based on mutual submission. Make sure you read Ephesians 5, starting with verse 21, not with verse 22. Put it in context. 21 says, both of you give yourself to each other. 
Wives, this way. Husbands, this way. We submit to each other in different ways. We have different motivations. We give ourselves. And if you think, husbands, for a minute you're not called to submit, you've got it wrong. You are the head of the home, yeah. But even as the head, you willingly give yourself and submit yourself to her. We know this to be true, that the Lord made marriage as a place to raise godly offspring. There's a lot of purposes in marriage. But one of the main ones that God had an idea about was that it would be a place to produce kids that would love God. Many marriages are, are focusing on everything but that. Many couples get together and they have this idea that we're going to be, you know, a team. We're going to have a successful team partnership here. And I'm going to make money and you're going to make money. And I'll have my own money and you'll have your own money. And we will, you know, live together and sleep together and go our separate ways from 9 to 5. And then we'll have a party when we get together at night. And that, that's their idea of their marriage union. Here's what Malachi 2 said. Has not the Lord made them one? I love the rhetorical questions from the Old Testament. There's always, there's always a right answer when you have God asking you a question. Has God not, has the Lord not made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. Notice this. Not just does your heart and your spirit belong to him, but your flesh does too. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. Know ye not, know ye not, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He said, why did he make them one? Here's the reason. God was seeking godly offspring. A marriage should have the forward look toward producing children that would love God. So, in this light, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. We know from the scripture that marriage is a holy covenant, not a contract. And God hates divorce. This is a touchy subject in, this, in the church. But I want to tell you that God's perspective is this. Moses only granted divorce back in the Old Testament. They came to Jesus and said, well, Jesus, what do you think? Moses said we could have a divorce. And Jesus very quickly said, yeah, that's true. But there was only one reason Moses went there. is because of the hardness of heart. They weren't going to do it anyway. They were going to, they'd already hardened their heart. So a, a writ of divorcement in those days was beca- issued because their hearts were hardened already. Long-term loving and successful marriage is a hard issue. Get that right and straight in your mind. It's not just working out problems and money and career. It's our heart. Proverbs 4.23 is one of my favorite verses. Pastor Brady begins a several-week series today called Proverbs, your morals, your money, and your mouth. We're going to study that all summer long in, in the uh, family room, family, living room services. My favorite verse is Proverbs 4.23. It says, guard your heart above all else. Above all else that you guard, guard your heart because out of your heart flows the issues of life. If your heart's upset, your life's going to be upset. If your heart's skewed and wrong and prejudiced, your life's going to follow. Malachi, again in chapter 2, says it this way. The Lord says, I hate divorce. He didn't say, I hate divorced people. You ask anybody who's been divorced, they'll tell you they hate it too. It's an awful thing. It's an awful experience. 
divorce. I, I asked the show of hands last week, you know, 70% of this people in this room have been touched by that in their family. Either a family member has been divorced or a brother, sister, mom or dad or some grandparent. People have experienced it. My mom filed for divorce when I was 11 years old. I remember seeing our name in the paper under that category and, and the feeling I carried away from that last even till this day I can still see that and feel the feelings I felt thinking that my parents would would divorce little 11 year old their their 11 year old son somehow or another managed to prolong that marriage and keep them from following through on that God says this I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with a garment says the Lord so again he says guard yourself in your spirit and don't break faith with each other now, we also know from the scripture that a man should treat his wife lovingly and with consideration. A loving and considerate way. And we know, this is something, guys, you may have not thought about, but your prayers are affected by the way you treat your spouse. How do you know that? Here's First Peter. King James says, Dwell with her according to knowledge. Here's what this version says. In the same way, husbands, be considerate as you live together with your wife. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, ladies, hear it, guys. Ladies are not weaker intellectually. They're not weaker spiritually. They're not weaker emotionally. They are not weaker in any way. They're just more refined. They're just prime rib. They're more delicate. They're more special. Yes, Constitutionally, maybe we have more muscles, uh, maybe we're stronger, maybe we have more, you know, force. But weaker does not mean that they're in any way uh, less than we are as creation. And in, in most ways, they're better than we are in creation. They're more refined. So treat her with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Why do we do this? He says, so that your prayers be not hindered. I have guys all the time that walk in my office and I talk to them. They're having trouble in their business. They're having trouble in life. And, and they're just, their stuff's not getting done and things aren't happening for them spiritually. And I listen to them talk and I immediately say, well, how you been treating your wife? What do you mean? Well, doesn't seem like any of your prayers are getting through. What's going on at home? Your prayer life can be a direct measurement of your spiritual life with your wife, guys. Marriage, we know, is to be honored and protected. We're going to get to this a little later. Hebrews 13.4. The 13th chapter of Hebrews is kind of a collection. I, I call it the catch-all chapter because he talks about all kinds of stuff in here. He talks about faith. He talks about praise. Offer the sacrifice of praise. He says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, every kind of thought is in the 13th chapter. It's almost like, let's see, what have I forgotten here? This is the last letter I'm going to write and he throws it all in here, and in verse 4, he says this about marriage. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed, speaking of that intimate connection between a man and a woman, should be kept pure. Marital purity is something that's sadly lacking in our culture, and sad to say, even in our Christian marriages. God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. If you think you're going to get away with something... Forget it. There's judgment. And you know, this is a scriptural idea. But here's what Jesus says. Judge yourself that you be not judged. 
It's time for us. Judgment begins, the Bible says, at the house of God. So, yeah, judgment's out there. But I'd rather judge myself and live a judged life, live a fasted life. What did he say in another place here? Lay aside every weight and sin which would hold you back. That you can run with patience the race that's set before you. So, marriages need to be kept pure. And if judgment needs to happen, judge yourself. Clean up your life. Make sure your marriage is pure. God's judgment is upon the adulterer and all those who are sexually immoral. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 19.6 They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's what we know for sure from the scriptures. We know what is right. Now it's a matter of doing what we know. I want to introduce to you a good friend of mine that uh, has been here this week. He's going back to Texas. This is Tim Barton. Tim, just wave your hand. Tim is a youth pastor at Lido Christian Center just outside of Fort Worth. Tim's dad was my roommate in college. I stood up with his mom and his dad when they got married. And their family has been a, a, just a big part of our life for many years. And his grandparents, it's been a generational blessing to the Grothies to know the Bartons. Tim and I were talking about practical wisdom the other day and James... And what are the two main topics there? Wisdom, knowledge. What is the difference? I can get knowledge. I can know a bunch of stuff. I can memorize scriptures. I can learn facts, figures, principles. But unless I do what I know, it never becomes wisdom. James says, be ye doers of the word and not just hearers only. Deceiving your own self. When you just hear, it's like a man looking at himself in a mirror and walking away and forgetting what he looks like. So I want to be a doer of what I know. And that and only that produces wisdom. Wisdom comes from acting and doing what you know. So I want to be a wise person. I want to walk in wisdom. He said, if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally, doesn't hold back. We have not because we ask not. But many times we don't have wisdom or we're not, we're not acting in wisdom because we're not doing what we know. The Hebrews put it this way. He said in another place in Hebrews, for him who knows what's right and doesn't do it, to him it's counted as sin. What is sin for the believer? It's knowing what's right and not doing it. Either avoiding it by omission or on purpose saying, I know, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's what becomes sin for us. Knowing what is right and now doing it. Choosing. I'm going to speak to you at some point before we finish about the choice that we have to make. Strong homes and marriages are a choice, not a chance. We're not just hoping that things are going to work out. Deuteronomy 30 says it this way. Today I've given you the choice between life and death. It's almost like God is saying, hey, listen, get a clue. Choose life. Here's life, here's death. Choose life, he says. This is the key to your life. The Message Bible puts it this way. If you love and obey the Lord, you will live a long life in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every day we make this choice. Joshua said it this way at the end of his life. I love Joshua because the first verse of chapter 1 says, Moses, my servant, is dead. It's like he's walking up to Joshua and saying, Okay, Josh, tag, you're it. You're going to lead the children now. Moses is gone. It's your, your turn. He leads them into the promised land. And at the end of his life, here's what he says. 
In Joshua 24, he says, hey, we've come a long way. You can either choose this day whom you will serve. You can choose to serve the gods back there in the land we came from or the gods here that are in this land where we are. But you've got to serve somebody, make a choice. And here's his verse. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve in verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm going to make a choice to serve the Lord in my house. God is more interested in our children living in an intact family than in some selfish way. We're going to live our own life, go our own way, and then our children can bounce around between mom and dad over here and in another place. So make a choice, not only for you, but for your children. Now, I want to talk to you about what I, what I would call destructive behaviors in a marriage relationship in a home. Put this away. Some of you are headed toward marriage. Some of you are married. Some of you are uh, looking down the road planning. Malachi 2 talks about this in context. I pulled a couple of verses out, but I want to read it to you in context. Verse 14. Why? You ask. It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her. You've covered up. You've acted covertly or in secret. You've not been open with your wife. You've been closed mouth. You've not communicated with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Rhetorical question. God was looking for godly offspring. So guard yourself in spirit. Don't break faith. He says, I hate divorce. I hate the man's covering of himself as with violence, as with a garment. Guard yourself in spirit and don't break faith. Here's the bottom line. Don't conceal things from each other in a marriage. Don't hold back. I recently, well, every day, it's it's a new day in the marriage and family office here at New Life Church. But recently... Very successful couple. Career, money, jobs, children. The wife just moved $100,000 of their joint money into an account under another name. Her maiden name. Changed all the passwords. Just decided, I'm going I'm to look out for myself. I don't feel real comfortable here. I don't feel like I'm getting everything out of this marriage I need, so... I'm just going to go ahead and move some money covertly. When the husband got online to try to check some accounts and pay some bills, he realized there's $100,000 gone out of my account. He calls the bank. Oh, well, your wife uh, closed that account. And now, What kind of trust does that build between two people? It's not even the amount of money. I've known, I've known wives and husbands that have done way more than that. quarter of a million dollars go away. Where'd it go? It's over here somewhere where you can't get at it. Don't conceal things. Don't break your faith. Don't break trust, not just in money, but in uh, attitude and in intimate relationship. It's not just limited to men. You've got to preserve your, your vitality of relationship in every way. Wives can be the making or the undoing of their husband. In the same way that husbands are to treat her considerately and with respect, that his prayers be not hindered. Here's what it says about a wife. A wise woman builds her house, Proverbs 14, 1, but, but with her own hands, a foolish woman tears hers down. There are lots of kinds of women in the Bible. A wife that is constantly tearing down her 
marriage relationship by her words, by her actions, is not serving her husband. A wife should not nag or constantly complain. Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. True story. I got a phone call one night. Uh, Pastor Grothy, mutual friend of ours, uh, could you come over to so-and-so's house? I'm, I'm here and there's a problem. And, and I think you need to come and visit. So I drove over to this friend's house. I walk in and his wife's sitting over here on the couch. And I said, where is he? She just went like this. So my friend comes down the stairs, this other guy who'd called me. And he said, come here. I went upstairs, went up to the second floor, went up into the attic. And I looked up and over in the corner of the attic, this guy's sitting there. And I look at him and I say, what's up? He said, it's better to dwell in the corner of the roof than with a quarrelsome woman in a big house. I mean, he's serious. He's quoting the Bible to me up in the attic. That's dramatic, but it, I mean, he's, he was kind of dramatic. I talked him out of the attic. You've heard of talking people off a ledge. I talked this guy out of the attic. Proverbs 21.19, it's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. And my personal favorite, Proverbs 27, verse 15, a quarrelsome wife is like... a dripping constantly on a rainy day. It's annoying. (laughs) So ladies, potential wives, you don't want to be like a drip. You don't want to send your husband to the desert or the attic. Here's an amplified version of marital purity. Let marriage be held in honor. 13.4 of Hebrews. What does that mean? Valuable, highly esteemed, worthy, precious, of great price, and especially dear. Marriage should be all those things. And let the marriage bed, speaking of sexual intercourse, be kept undefiled, undishonored, and pure. God will punish the unchaste, guilty of all sexual vice, and the adulterer. I'm going to encourage you, don't. When marriage becomes real for you, and when you accept uh, your partner, you accept your spouse, and you become one, don't let the world influence your marriage. Don't let the world influence your marriage bad. Don't let what the world says is good influence you. And don't try to live up to some standard that is first of all, wrong, and another standard, fleeting. They're always changing. What's good today is not going to be good next week. And what's really great now is somehow going to change in the world standard. Keep your relationship sexually pure. Enjoy each other. And the act of marriage at that point is the sign of the covenant. The two shall become one. There is a covenant relationship that, that, that happens. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about it this way. He said... Two are better than one. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. When you join together with your spouse and you bring the Lord in as the third part of your relationship, you, you say your vows before 
God and for a comp- before a company of family and friends at an altar and you're saying, I'm going to promise and live my life for you and with you, make vows, you're inviting that third fold of the cord in there and it's a strength to your relationship. The fifth chapter of the book of Proverbs is dramatic in its description of wayward sons, wayward husbands, wayward women. The last several verses are an exhortation to married men. I want you to hear this from Proverbs 5, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Metaphorically, intimate moment with your own wife, with your own husband. Should your springs overflow in the streets or your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Fornication is sex before marriage. Adultery is sex with someone other than your marriage partner. Fornication and adultery are highly sensitive topics and often avoided, but it has to be told. We need to know the truth about it. Sex is wrong outside of marriage. It's sin. And inside of marriage, it should be kept between you and the partner that you've chosen as a spouse, lifelong partner. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. Not to be shared with anybody else. He said, may you rejoice with the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. I came home one night, the first year we were married, my wife had taken this class at, at church for women, for young women and for married women called Fascinating Womanhood. It's a great topic. Wonderful recipes, tips on domestic life, you know, just how to be a good wife. It was so good, I sent Becky back for the second semester. It was great. I gained 40 pounds our first year of marriage. Strictly from the recipes she brought home from Fascinating Womanhood. It was great. I was real skinny, too. I went from 180 to 220, like that. And I've maintained 220 for the last 30 years. But she, I came home one night, she had been to the class and I was out somewhere and she was kind of already back in the, in the bedroom getting ready for bed and I found this note and it was in her writing and it said, before you come to bed tonight, could you write out 10 things that you love about me so that I can have them for class next week? The assignment was, have your husband write out 10 things that he loves about you. So I take the list and I'm, I've still got it by the way and I'm, don't tell Becky I've shared this because most of you aren't married. So, I'm saying, well, I love your smile. I love the way you love God. I love the way you love me. I love your eyes and your tender touch. I had just got through studying the book of Proverbs and I was really meditating on the book of Proverbs to teach it. I love your breasts. And I had just read verse... 18, 19. May her breasts always satisfy you. The implication here is her breasts, not the breasts of another woman, only your wife. Her breasts. So I wrote in, you know, in my list of 10 things, like number five was, I love your breasts, and in parentheses I put, does that count for two? Just trying to make it to ten. <laughs> may you always, husbands, 
may you always be captivated with her love, not the love of another woman. And why will you, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? Don't exchange, guys, true intimacy for a counterfeit. When, when you found the wife that God has planned for you, don't swap it out for something that's not true intimacy. Even on television, even in a magazine, even somebody at the office or somebody in the neighborhood. True intimacy is to be protected and maintained between the two of you, your husband, your wife. Proverbs 6 says it this way. Verse 32. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that does it destroys his own soul. So, the bottom line here is unfaithfulness in its final, truest sense is a dead end. You're dead. Adultery leads to death. The scriptures talk about different kinds of women. We've talked about the nagging woman, the complaining woman. We've talked about the adulterous woman. We've talked about the strange woman. The virtuous woman is also a topic of the book of Proverbs. Just read Proverbs 31. Here's Proverbs 12:4. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. Ladies, you are the making of your husband. Whereas these other destructive women are the undoing of their husband, you are, the virtuous woman, the making, the crown of his life. But a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. Contentious women that are always nagging and complaining. We've read about the strange woman. Here's another description of her in verse 24 of Proverbs 6. All of these words that he writes is to keep you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of a wayward wife. Notice, this lady has her own husband somewhere. He's out somewhere. He's back at the house or he's out traveling. But this woman who is out looking for something has a husband back where she came from. Be aware of her. Don't lust after her in your heart or her beauty. Don't let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces a man to a loaf of bread. What's bread cost these days? Is your life worth more than two and a half dollars? Guys, this kind of unfaithfulness reduces your life to nothing more than a couple of bucks. Can a man, well, well let's read it. Uh, prostitute reduces you and the adulteress preys upon your very life. A rhetorical question. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? No. You're going to get burned. It's going to burn you. And your lap may be a metaphor. It'll burn you more there than anywhere else. I know men who have brought venereal disease back to their marriage bed. I know women who have been wayward in their relationship with their husband and brought a disease back to their marriage bed and given it, passed it on to her husband. Oh my goodness. Well, it's, it's the truth. It's reality. And it's, don't think, I just want to say this, don't think it can't happen to you. Don't sit there and say, well, you know, I love God and I'm not... I've, I think the sober approach to this would be Man, thank the Lord that I know God's word. Yeah, but I'm going to sober up. To me, it makes me sit up straighter and pay more attention to what God's saying. When you think that you're, in a, you're untouchable and you're invincible and it could never happen to you, sexual sin in my life, in my marriage? Jack Hayford, who is an elder of this church, he is an overseeing elder, outside spiritual overseer for this congregation, tells a story. Has anybody ever heard Jack Hayford tell the story of his own encounter? with the anatomy of adultery. 
Jack Hayford, the pastor of Church on the Way, just outgoing president of the Foursquare denomination. Yeah, and he sat and told this story, and I heard him with my own mouth, and his wife was sitting on the front row. He said he was a young pastor, had been asked to be the head, the national head of the youth ministry and youth pastor, national youth, youth director for the Foursquare International Church. He was working in their office in downtown Los Angeles. He'd just graduated from Life Bible College. He was powerful in the word, vibrant and energetic and had everything going for him, had all kinds of opportunity. And he was sitting at his desk one day as he had for many months, working with his staff and working with his administrative assistant. And he said that day, as had happened for weeks and months, his assistant came into his desk and she laid a piece of paper on the desk for him to sign. Normal procedure for business. And he said, in that moment, I had the most impure thoughts go through my mind about that lady. He said, just in a flash, I had this, all these lustful thoughts about her. He said, that quick, that quick, I shut it down. I, I, I just brought that thought into captivity and I said, oh my goodness, pull that thought down, take control of that thought, cast it out, you know. And, in, and he said, in just a couple of seconds, it was over. But it kind of scared him. And he said, six weeks later, out of the blue, she came in for some phone call, business or something, and she walked in. He said, all of a sudden, I had this thought go through my mind about her, this lustful thought, and he said, that quick, I brought it into captivity. He said, I pondered it a minute, thought about it, wondered. And he said, from that day forward, something began to happen between him and this lady that worked in his office. It was unspoken at first, but they knew that something was up. They would find themselves maybe in a, in a joint meeting, finding a chair next to each other, or maybe at the lunchtime, taking the opportunity to have lunch together at a separate table, or maybe even finding reasons to stay late after work to be in the same room to work on stuff together. And they knew at that point that the opportunity had presented itself. And I want to just talk to you about these four things. Jack Hayford shared these things. This will work for all of you. The opportunity is the subtle device that the enemy puts in front of you. It's unassuming. It's a person you never thought of in that way. It's somebody maybe your mental preoccupation has never been with them. You never had a lustful thought about somebody like that in your life. And all of a sudden, you have this unusual desire to be with that person. Uh, maybe you even deny you feel this way. You're looking for opportunities, though, to be with them, to be around, be in their presence. We all need that kind of ego thing, especially if we're not getting it at home. Maybe our husbands aren't paying as much attention to us. Maybe our wife is, you know, ignoring us a little more now that the children are in the house. You're wanting to compliment them a little more on their looks or on what they're wearing or on their appearance. You'll find these things are all of a sudden a little awkward. And then past the opportunity, you go toward the exploration. You say, I wonder how much they're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Uh, oh, you, you think maybe they're, they're talking my language. I, I think we have similar views. Uh, you kind of even have, do you remember that junior high giddiness when you thought about that other guy or the, the girl that sat in front of you in math class and you thought, <laughs> I wonder if she likes me. 
I'm too, I'm too scared to tell her, though, that I like her. You know, here you are married with kids and you're having this little fluttering in your stomach. And the opportunity leads to an exploration. It's not just unnatural, it's demonic. There is a verse for that, which is on the last page. Ephesians 4 says this way. Verse 27, don't give the devil a foothold. You've got to, at this point, to protect your own life and to protect your marriage, you've got to take charge and not give the devil any foothold. This is the defining of the relationship. You get to this point where uh, even 1 Timothy 4, I've, I've said it was on the last page, it's right here, the seducing spirits. He talks about even the spirits that would be present trying to seduce you or both of you into something that was ungodly. Then there's the compromise. The question comes, I wonder if, and even the devil may, and Jack Hayford said it this way. He said, I even had thoughts that came to me from the devil saying, well, you know, your wife Anna, you don't know this, and his wife's name is Anna Hayford. You don't know this, Jack, but Anna's going to get sick and die, and you're going to be a widower. And I'm just preparing you now for this next wife. And he thought that. Even as crazy as that sounded, that thought passed through his mind. God is arranging a partner for you because if something's going to happen to Anna, you're going to be ready. And then the day will come between these kinds of situations when the feelings will be all out in the open. When it's no longer a thought or an exploration, it's, hey, I've got to tell you how I feel. It's a matter of deciding who will initiate the time to be together. And you know what? You just need to be set free. At that point, if it gets to that point, you've got to pray for a heart to do what's right and just say, Lord, I repent and be free. Here's how Jack Hayford dealt with it. After several weeks of this in his office, it never had gotten to a physical point, but there was this all kind of unspoken, uh, intangible emotion going on. He went home and he told his wife, and I heard him tell this story and she was sitting six feet away from him. She said, I went to my wife at dinner and I said, honey, I've just got to tell you, there's been a, a trap set for me at the office. I've been under this emotional weight. And this lady in my office was a temptation. I'm going to tell you right now, it's over. I'm confessing to you. Nothing's happened, but I've been thinking about what could happen and how I've been attracted. And he repented and he told her. And then the next day at the office, he told that lady, and that was the end of it. It was just over. Just over. Some men even need to change jobs. Some ladies even need to go to another department. If you've got a problem, you just need to make the break so that it doesn't ruin your life. Galatians 5 says, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22 says, Avoid every kind of evil. You're going to have to avoid these traps. Control your thought life. Notice what the psalmist said. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, my thoughts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Philippians 4, 8. Think on these things. What are we thinking on? Things that are lovely, true, wholesome, of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, don't allow fantasizing. Just control your thoughts. Paul said, take every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 3. And then, when you get married... Don't give yourself and your flesh an opportunity to sin. You know, it's hard to commit adultery if you're never alone with anybody but your married partner. It's just really hard to commit adultery if you're never alone with anybody of the opposite sex. I want to encourage you. 
Have some standards. Don't be alone. Don't compliment unnecessarily. I mean, it's all right to say to somebody, man, that's, that's a great color on you or whatever, but, you know, you really look hot. I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Don't protect and defend somebody else other than your marriage partner. Well, you know, they're, they're, they're nice ladies. Don't be so judgmental. Do tell somebody that's stronger than you and then pray and cover this whole situation in the blood of Christ. I want to encourage you that divorce can happen if you'll let it. And don't think that your situation with your marriage partner makes you uh, any better or any more immune than anybody else in the world. As a Christian, you want to protect your marriage. You want to put up spiritual security systems. You want to have safeguards in place to where you don't allow yourself to get caught in the enemy's trap. He goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's not a lion. He goes about as a roaring lion, trying to see who he can trap and ensnare in sexual sin. Thank you for letting me be with you today. Let me pray for you and your families. How many of you are engaged currently? Great. Congratulations. How many of you want to be? How many of you are married? Congratulations. Thank you all. Father, you see us here today. You know our hearts. We set our hearts on you and not on things of the earth. We want to look toward your perfect plan for us, Lord, with our future. And for the one that we've been praying for, Lord, the one that's been in our heart. We don't know their name, but you do. We pray that you would perfect everything that concerns our partners, those that are coming into our life for the future. Lord, we know it's a good thing when a man finds a wife. We pray, Lord, that you would help us be found and help us to, help us to find your will to be done in our lives. We're praying, Heavenly Father, that you would perfect everything that concerns us in our relationships. Take away everything that's not like you. Search us and know us and take things out of us that are unlike you and replace them with your spirit with your character, with your knowledge, with your wisdom. Lord, we know that earthy and sensual and devilish wisdom is not from you, but the wisdom that comes from above is peaceable, full of good fruit, and easy to be received. Help us to receive, Lord, your wisdom in our lives and in our future and in our relationships. I pray for everybody in this room that you would give them, Lord, as we delight ourselves in you, you would give us the desires of our heart. Place them in there and bring them to pass. Lord, your timing is perfect. You make all things beautiful in your time. Let your beautiful timing be upon us as it relates to our future in marriage. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. See you next week.